Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 and find verse 5. Romans 4, verse 5. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture, but I'll begin with that one. This is the inerrant, all-sufficient, sweeter-than-honey Word of God. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man whom, to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And then I want to read Isaiah 61 verses 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud. As the garden causes the things that are sown to spring in it to spring forth so the lord god will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before the nations let's pray father thank you for your word we pray that you would help us understand the depths and the beauties of justification by faith and these robes of righteousness which tell us so much about you and tell us so much about ourselves every day, even when we put on our clothing to remind us. Amen. Please be seated. So for many months, we've been hovering over the doctrine of justification by faith alone in our studies. In Romans, we've seen Paul's delight in justification uh, by faith, which is which is the imputation of Christ's righteousness upon the sinner, the the clothing of Christ's righteousness, the robes of righteousness laid upon the sinner. The apostle goes to great length to explain the specifics of justification, particularly the danger that man is in, the danger that religious man is in, the danger that moral man is in, the danger that pagan man is in, all itemized through the book of Romans, all pointing to the doctrine of justification by faith. We're now in chapter 5. Well, we'll get back to chapter 5 soon where the apostle has been itemizing the blessings of, of justification by faith. Justification by faith is that action, that judicial action whereby God declares the sinner righteous. And the, the shame of his nakedness is covered by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And what we have been doing beginning the last time uh, that I spoke on this be in a, a, a sermon called Beyond Modesty. We're talking about the biblical doctrine of clothing. What does the Bible say about clothing? And uh, the scriptures teach that physical garments are a type of spiritual garments. That physical garments are actually to be a demonstration and a reminder to the believer that Jesus Christ covers shame. He covers nakedness. And God has given us a physical, everyday thing that we do by putting on clothes to remind us of what it means to be covered in, in robes of righteousness. This uh, instruction about the doctrine of clothing is, it is the doctrine of justification applied applied to something that you do every day of your life. And I've been operating under a methodology. The methodology is called a biblical theology. There are various ways to study Bible doctrine, systematic theology, pastoral theology, historical theology. This is biblical theology. Biblical theology begins with the first mention 
of a particular doctrine and works sequentially uh, unfolding that doctrine as God unfolds the doctrine from Genesis to Revelation. So that's the thinking that we have been operating under. We began in Genesis, focused on the Old Testament last week or last time, and then now we're going to be focusing on the New Testament. Now, it's very important that we understand two things here. Um, this whole matter of clothing is under a doctrinal category. You should sort out the things of this life under Bible doctrine. And the doctrine of clothing is a subset of justification by faith. And uh, the second thing is that it really is about everything else in the Christian life. When you become a Christian, you want Jesus Christ to be your king, to be your master, to be your teacher. You, to be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And to think about anything, whether it's your work life or your family life, even your clothing, we're talking about the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that Christ would be glorified in everything that we do. And I'm reminded again of that great statement by Abraham Kuyper who said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And everything that we have is God's, dedicated to him, consecrated to him. And God actually desires for the believer to consecrate himself in his clothing the way that the priests did in the Old Testament. God does, he wants your time, he wants your heart, he wants your mind, and he also wants your clothing so that not a square inch of your clothing is given to you except for the glory of God, not for the expression of pride, not for ostentation, not to make a name for yourself, not to create your own look for your own purposes, for your own glory. But God has designed everything for his own glory. And as we talk about this whole matter of doctrine of clothing and modesty, most people think of, when they hear the word modesty, they think of women's clothing. That really so misrepresents the biblical teaching. Because most of what the Bible teaches isn't primarily about women's clothing. It does speak of women's clothing. And we have talked about that and will talk about that. But... Uh, the idea of uh, clothing in the Bible applies both to men and women, and we shouldn't just think of modesty as a woman thing. It's, it's also a man thing. And so uh, I, when we think about how we clothe ourselves, my, I think my primary objective in preaching these sermons is that we really understand what God is doing so that when you, when you begin to put on clothes, you understand why God created your clothing. And you that, that you that you that you want to be faithful to him in the clothing that you put on, so that he would be glorified. And what would be glorified more than anything else? That Jesus Christ covers shame. That he clothes his children in robes of righteousness that they did not deserve. So that's the doctrine of clothing in a nutshell. Last, last time we were in the Old Testament, what are God's purposes of clothing? Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 21, God created clothing for the covering of shame and the covering of nakedness. And so whenever you stand in front of the mirror, you should think about that. And secondly, uh, God created clothing for beauty and glory. We learn about this in several places uh, particularly in a concentrated way in Exodus 28, where we learn about the garments of the priests. They were for beauty and glory. And that actually matters to us because in the New Testament, the, the believer is, is a priest. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a, a, a holy priesthood, a royal nation. And, and God has given us uh, a, a manifestation in the New Testament era of the Old Testament priesthood, not exactly in the same way, but in many of the same ways, the New Testament priest does many of the things that the Old Testament priest does. Uh, intercession, offering praises to God and all kinds of things like that. But clothing was 
made for beauty and for glory. There's no diminishing of beauty in the kingdom of God in clothing. Uh, clothing is also for manhood and womanhood. We covered this last week, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, that men and women should dress accordingly. Uh, clothing should be distinctively feminine or distinctively masculine. And we, we live in a world today that is on a rampage to erase womanhood and manhood. And, you know, everywhere you look, there's this design of the devil to erase the beauty of womanhood and also the, the strength of manhood. And this gender-blending, blurring world that we live in is contradicted by the church of Jesus Christ. We stand in rebellion against the erasing of womanhood and the beauty of femininity. Praise the Lord to, to uphold something that's so obvious like that. We talked last time that God created clothing uh, out of his passion for purity in contrast to what we read about in Proverbs 7, the attire of the harlot. There's a category of clothing, the attire of the harlot. And by the way, you, you can buy the attire of the harlot in almost every store today for women particularly. Um, and then... Uh, for he created clothing for distinctions of worldliness uh, and the language in Zephaniah 1.8, foreign apparel. You know, apparel that clearly arises out of paganism and is clearly contrary to the design of God for, for clothing. So that's the Old Testament. Now we're, we're moving to the New Testament uh, today, but... Um, when you go back to Genesis, you clearly uh, understand that uh, the internal work of justification is pictured by these robes that God clothed his children with at the very beginning. This outward activity is a picture of an inward reality. And it should, it's designed to be an encouragement to the believer, I believe. And so... Um, Clothing covers the outside of the body. You know, in the Old Testament, we noted that in Genesis and in Exodus, the clothing was very specifically defined. It was really from the shoulders to the thighs or the knees. That was the clothing that God wanted to clothe. Adam and Eve inadequately and sufficiently clothed themselves, but God said, no, I will clothe you according to my righteousness. And so, and I believe that actually is meaningful for us today, that both men and women should be clothed from the shoulders down to the knees or down to the thighs at least. That's the explicit language. If you look at the words that are used in the Bible, this is what God is talking about. And so Christians should be careful to be a picture of that. And so there's much to say about the, the doctrine of clothing all over the Bible, I'm fearful today that this might seem very disjointed because I'm going to run us through the New Testament with lots of passages of Scripture. And uh, I, hope, I hope it's uh, helpful. I hope it's a blessing. So, but before we jump into the New Testament, maybe just a little bit about my own history, my own life. It wasn't until I was in my mid-40s and before I ever heard a sermon or read anything about modesty. It's astounding. You can live for a long time in decent churches and not hear anything about actually one of the most obvious doctrines in the Bible. And it's divisive, and you know, pastors would rather jump over some of those texts because they are, they are actually controlling because God wants to control how you dress. He wants to control everything in your life because he's good, and his control is a good control. But back, back in those days, I, I read a book uh, by Jeff Pollard called The Public Undressing of America, one of the best books on modesty I think ever written. And... Um, that caused lots of changes in our family. Uh, it caused a little bit of tumult. You know, I had three daughters and a son. But we desired to somehow understand what the Bible said 
about clothing and, and we're just working through that. But through the years since then, as I just continue to read through the Bible, preach through the Bible, I continue to notice all throughout the Bible there's, there's a common thread, a common thread about clothing that begins in Genesis and the, and the language is similar all the way through the Bible. You find it in, 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 uh, in the Pentateuch, you find it in the history, you find it in the prophets, you find it in the writings, you find it in the, in the, in the, uh, the poetic books, you, and you find it all through the New Testament. So this is starting to dawn on me. So over the years, I'm collecting these things and, and trying to categorize them, and I finally am trying to collect them into a book called Beyond Modesty, the Biblical Doctrine of Clothing. Um, so I'm really preaching out of sort of my meditations over the, over the years on this whole matter. So this morning I want to make stops. You'll see it in my outline in the Gospels, in the, in the Epistles, and in Revelation. So we're going to go through various stopping points there um, here in the New Testament. It's very interesting. You know, when you get to the Epistles, you, you have what uh, uh, Greg Nichols calls the apostolic dress code. <laughs> we'll get there in just a minute. But let's get into the New Testament. Let's start, let's start in the Gospels. I want to first direct you to Matthew 22, 11. I'm going to move so quickly here. It might be frustrating. If it's frustrating, don't raise your hand. I know it's going to be frustrating already. But uh, in the Gospels, you find the man without the wedding garments in Matthew chapter 22, verse 11. I'll read verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are are chosen in this in this in this story the man without the wedding garments is a symbol of the man who's not been clothed with Christ uh, he was invited but he did not bear the fruits of salvation he assumes there are no obligations to the gospel and he has not put on Christ that's the point of that. So in that passage, clothing is likened to salvation. And that's so common in this thread throughout the whole Bible. Uh, in, Matthew 20, in Matthew 8, verse 24, we encounter that remarkable story of the Gadarene demoniac. He's running around, cutting himself, terrorizing everybody. He's naked. He's absolutely uncontrollable. And Jesus comes to him and casts out his demons. And what happens? He's clothed and in his right mind. That's a picture of salvation. He's covered. He's protected with these robes of righteousness. Uh, in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 6, you find a man using clothing to demonstrate his pride, his pomposity, his religious perfectionism. Uh, and Jesus condemns this man in his sense of superiority in the way that he presents himself through his garments. And Jesus is speaking to the multitudes and to his disciples in Matthew 23, verse 5. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. So this is a person who's making a fair show in the flesh, as one of the commentators says. He's using his clothing to manifest his pride. He, uh, he has a form of godliness, but without the power. And the, the Pharisees were doing this in Jesus' day, to prove that they were more holy, that they were more strict, that they were more zealous for the law than others. You can find this actually in some women who dress modestly. They're doing it out of pride. It can happen. It's not always pride, but it can be. Anything can be a manifestation of pride. 
But here you find this Pharisee who's dressing so well according to Scripture. But he does it, he does it out of pride. So you have these stopping points in the Gospels. Let's go to the letters, uh, to the epistles. Uh, we'll begin in Ephesians chapter 6. This is in the context of putting on the whole armor of God. This is clothing. This is clothing for battle, uh, spiritual warfare. But, it, but the spiritual warfare is actually manifested in, in actual articles, garments of clothing. It's a very beautiful and in, interesting passage. But you have at the beginning the breastplate of what? Righteousness. It's a breastplate of righteousness. Now, when you read that word righteousness, you know that it's, it's mentioned all over the Bible. What does that mean? And of course, you know, the word righteousness either means uh, righteous acts in terms of holy, holy behavior, or it has to do with the righteousness of God, which is by faith. And this breastplate of righteousness, I, I believe it's both. And we, we don't have time to elaborate that this, this breastplate of righteousness is of, of both justification and sanctification. And um, th- there's so many who've written much about this. Martin Lloyd-Jones and many others have written about this breastplate of righteousness. But uh, for our purposes today, this breastplate of righteousness is a protection to the believer Uh, It is the assurance of faith. You put on the breastplate of righteousness. You are protected by your assurance of faith that you've been justified by faith alone, not by your own works. You escape the darts of the devil to accuse you. He's the accuser of their brethren. He's always telling you how stupid, how rotten, how unrighteous, how unholy you are, how, how unworthy you are, but you have a breastplate of righteousness to protect you from the accusations of the devil who's always trying to condemn you. This is the breastplate of righteousness. It's a protective shield against the attacks of the devil to tell you that you are worthless before God. When in fact, he's given you robes of righteousness and a breastplate of righteousness. John Stott explains it like this. Certainly, no spiritual protection is greater than a righteous relationship with God to have been justified by his grace through simple faith in Christ crucified. And we stand before God every day uncondemned. You know, who will bring a charge against God's elect? You know, our hearts so often condemn us. The devil wants you to be condemned And he doesn't stop even after you become a Christian. But God gives you a breastplate of righteousness to remind you that you're protected from the accusations of the devil. Let's go to James chapter 2. Another use of uh, clothing here. In James chapter 2, you have uh, really a trap a trap that clothing sets for people, a trap that would cause you to have partiality. Someone comes into the assembly and they're just dressed in, so fine, in such finer and you are tempted to respect them more than the person who's poor. And so James chapter two, verse two, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes and you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes. Well, he, this is condemned, this kind of, kind of partiality. And that, that clothing actually can become a temptation for favoritism and condemnation. To condemn someone who is poor by the way they're dressed and to exalt someone who is beautifully dressed, richly dressed, it's a temptation that we all have to be swayed by outward appearances in clothing. And we make snap judgments upon people in that way. 
But the, the pastoral letters focus on pride primarily, not exclusively, but uh, uh, modesty and er, expressed in clothing is, a ma- is an expression of the hidden person of the heart. And um, so let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is this, 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 3, which we're going to deal with here, are really the central modesty texts for women. But they're not only directed toward women. And you learn that very quickly in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, uh, and and I'm, I'm just going to try to describe this uh, without having to get into too much detail. But 1 Timothy 2 uh, begins with immodesty of men first and then immodesty of women. The immodesty of men is expressed in the way that they pray. Uh, they pray proudly. They pray with, with an uplifted heart. And uh, he says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So he first addresses immodesty in men. Pride expressed in the way men pray, the way men present themselves so pompously. But then he says, in like manner, verse 9, in like manner. So he's not talking about something different. He's talking about expressions of pride in women. He first talks about expressions of pride in men And then he turns toward women. And then he says, in like manner, verse 9, also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold pearls, gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good work. So he's talking about how men operate in the church and express their pride and how women operate in the church and express their pride in a different way through their clothing and the way that they look. That's what he's saying. He's contrasting immodesty in men and women and the different ways that they express themselves. And and in this passage, you know, the Apostle Paul is talking about how women uh, have a public profession of faith. It's a profession of, of humility, not pride. He's speaking about in the church. And there are, in the whole context of, of this passage, uh, there are hindrances to the gospel. And one of the hindrances of the gospel is proud men who pray pompously it hinders the spread of the gospel. And the other is prideful women who are just trying to make a scene with themselves. So that's what the apostle is doing here. It's really about the propagation of the gospel and the outworkings of pride. Uh, Greg Nichols puts it this way. He does not want the men to mouth off and he does not want the women to show off. I think that summarizes the text pretty well. And so he's addressing this matter of modesty in men and women. Now, one, one, of the, one of the most helpful parts of this passage, and it's, of course, directed to, toward women when it gets to clothing, is there's really a lexicon of fashion. There is a sort of a dictionary, in a sense. And there are seven words that describe how women should think about their clothing. So I'm going to walk through each one of these seven words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Uh, In like manner, let the women adorn, that's the first word, themselves, in modest apparel. Those are the next two words. And then with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair and gold or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness and good works. So those are the stopping points to help us understand this doctrine of clothing as it's related uh, to, to women. So the first word is the word adorn. Adorn. It's a verb. It's actually something that a woman does. It's a word that's uh, related to 
Well, it's the word cosmos or uh, cosmeo, and it, it has to do with an orderly universe, the cosmos. The, the universe is orderly, and it's beautiful. It's well-appointed. And um, so this, a, a woman, uh, she is doing something. She is engaging in a beautiful, ordered clothing. That's cosmeo. And um, uh, it has to do with decorating something. It's appropriate for women to, to dress beautifully. And I think that is, is a, 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 it's consistent with the purpose of clothing for beauty and glory among the priests. The second word is the word modest. Now, this is uh, not the verb form of the same word, cosmios. And it has to do with appropriate clothing. Uh, it, it, it does include attractiveness, as we've already seen, uh, but the term has to do with something that is proper and suitable. Um, uh, you know, clothing, you know, connects with identity. It, al- it always does. And so this, this clothing should be appropriate clothing. We don't connect, you know, Christian women don't connect with the immodest women of the world. They don't connect with the fashion industry uh, except when the fashion industry delivers something up that actually is modest. You know, we talked about this last week where, or last time, uh, where dressing the way that the culture has you dress is not always a bad thing. But culture, you know, often, you know, causes immodest dress, but not always. Most of us are dressed in modern clothing and it's not immodest clothing. What, what Christians should do is look at the clothing of the culture and apply the principles of Scripture to that culture. In the first century, the men were wearing long robes. You know, in other places in the world, uh, you know, in Muslim countries, they wear long robes. It's distinctively feminine. It's distinctively masculine. But the, the, the reality is we live in these cultures, and God gives us basic principles to apply to whatever cultural dress that we're subjected to in that culture. And so a Christian can dress like the culture as long as it's consistent with the principles of, of modesty. And so Paul here in this word is arguing that, that clothing would be sensible, that they would, that a woman would demonstrate sober and clear thinking about her, her wardrobe choices. It is suitable clothing a woman should not be ignorant of the effect of her clothing on a man. A woman should not be clueless about what she's doing when she's putting on her clothes. She needs to be aware of how her clothing would affect men, uh, particularly, and even women. But, and she needs to understand that women see things differently. Women, or men, I'm sorry, men see things differently. Men see things and that's kind of how men are wired. And every woman needs to really understand that and not be clueless. The third word is the word propri- propriety. The word is hadias. This has to do with reserve in clothing. Uh, this has to do with humility and respect and reserve. Uh, the, new, the, the King James Version translates this shamefacedness. It's reserve. It's not overstating. It's understating. Maybe that's a good way to talk about it. Uh, but the Greek word literally means reverence, bashfulness, even in some places downcast eyes. In, instead of flaunting, it's, it's reserve. Um, and that's this word propriety, hadias. Uh, the next word is moderation. Uh, the dress should be moderate with propriety and Moderation. This is a word that has to do with discretion uh, and a sense of control. I'm going to read from a, a Greek lexicon. To behave in a sensible manner with the implication of thoughtful awareness of what is best. Moderation, sensibility. And then the fifth word, proper, proper clothing. This is suitable, fitting clothing, clothing that is right uh, for the moment. There's a moral judgment that you make on your clothing. Is it fitting? Is it the kind of clothing that I should be wearing? Is it the kind of clothing that covers me the way that God 
has designed for me to be covered from my shoulders to my thighs. Um, and then the sixth word, professing, professing godliness. Uh, this is a very interesting idea. This is clothing that is proper for women professing godliness. And, you know, clothes, hair, jewelry, and all other things are a profession. God makes clothing a profession of your faith. And um, uh, I like the way that John Angel James speaks of this. He says, particularly to women in the church, study your profession and thoroughly understand what it implies and what it enjoins. You know, your, your clothing is a profession of faith. And I would just say, that's not just true with women. It's also true for men as well. And then the seventh word, good works. For good works. A woman's clothing, whether at home or in the church, in the grocery store, in the beach, it should be to promote good works. It shouldn't be proclaiming fashion or sex or pride, but rather godliness and propriety and humility. And... Uh, and so there you have these, these, seven, these seven words here that describe this lexicon of women's clothing in the church of Jesus Christ. And so when you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, let's go there. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, uh, Peter is speaking again about women and, and again elaborating. We had, we had the Apostle Paul and his apostolic dress code now we go to the peter we have two apostles teaching women in the church how to dress on a top level and this uh really has to do with uh identity do not let your adornment be merely outward arranging the hair wearing gold or putting on fine apparel rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And so here, the apostle is, is telling us that uh, our clothing is an outward expression of our hearts. There's the hidden person of the heart, which is precious in the sight of God. And, and that's, that's what clothing ought to bear witness to. And what we've seen here is, uh, we, there are two things. One, we see definitions for the kind of clothing, basic principles. And then we also go to the heart. These are the two matters. It's wrong to say it only matters what's in your heart. It doesn't just matter what's in your heart. It actually matters what's on the outside in what you wear. But what is on the outside is a reflection of the heart. So the heart is so critical. That's why the Lord tells us, keep your heart with all diligence for in it are the, the wellsprings of life. So it's the matters of the heart, but those things uh, don't just stand alone in, in silence. They actually express themselves in outward means, in this case, clothing. And, and really all of this is to say, you know, you were bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. That's what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So let's, let's just do some summarizing of what we've encountered here in the New Testament. What is immodesty? Immodesty is an expression of self, drawing attention to self. Uh, immodesty is drawing attention to areas of the body that would cause uh, men to be distracted from purity. Uh, immodesty is a manifestation of pride. Um, immodesty is insensitivity to the temptations of men. Immodesty can be lack of brotherly love. Uh, but what is modesty? It is an external expression of inward affections. Uh, it is a public profession of faith. It is a reflection of inner holiness expressed in outward appearance. It's a proclamation of the gospel. It's a demonstration of humility. 
It's a display of self-control. And so you have this contrast between what is immodest and what is modest. And of course, this is not simply a woman thing. Uh, these principles, act, the principles actually are <laughs> accessible to men, all of them, that, uh, that apply to women. And so uh, these things are very, very critical. Now, I'll just give you my own opinions, my own thoughts about this, particularly in two categories that are probably controversial. And uh, one would be uh, men's clothing, uh, and then how we deal with things regarding sports and swimming and the beach and even children. So I just want to make some comments about that. Um, the explicit teaching of the Bible is that covering nakedness means covering from the shoulders to the thighs, probably to the knees. And I do believe that uh, that applies to men. Uh, many, many years ago, I wrote an article called Why I'm Against uh, bikini-clad women and bare-chested men swimming in my lake. I wasn't making a rule for the whole world, but if you come and swim in my lake, I'm going to want you to be clothed. I want you to have a swim shirt on. Because <laughs> I, I actually believe the language is clarifying for how men should dress. And men should not be running around bare-chested any more than women should be running around bare-chested either. I realize that probably runs so contrary to so much of the thinking here, but I'm just telling you how I, I apply these passages of Scripture, you know, when it, when it comes to swimming. And I'm not making a global rule about men wearing, you, you know, wearing surfs, you know, surf shirts while they're swimming. But if you come to my lake, that's how it's going to be because that's my conscience on the matter. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that really arises out of the way that God clothed, the degree to which God clothed Adam and Eve and the degree to which he clothed the priests. And this same language of tunics uh, appears in Scripture. I think, it's, I think it's meaningful and relevant when it comes to that. Um, so I don't, I don't think that, uh, all of, that everything that the Bible says about modesty changes when you go swimming. Uh, that the principle of covering nakedness is a universal principle. So, um, you know, uh, there, there's this idea that if, you, if you're involved in some kind of sport activity, then you don't have to dress modestly anymore. Um, I, I, I read a while back where the Nor Norwegian volleyball team decided they weren't going to wear bikinis on the volleyball court and they were fined by, you know, by the association. The reason is because actually people want to watch them in bikinis. And, you know, uh, we don't dispense with God's principles when we go swimming or when we're doing our sports. God's principles are universal. And I, and I believe they should be upheld. Um, what about children? You know, children are innocent. They're little uh, should children be clothed according to the, the ways that are described in the Word of God? Should there be a difference? Should there be a double standard when you are dealing with little children? And my view is that, no, there's no double standard with it. And we're actually always training our children about how to clothe them. We're training them how to do everything. And how to clothe themselves is, is one of those things and so uh, we should be teaching our children how the Bible teaches us how to dress. Whether they're four years old or eight years old, they should be dressing accordingly uh, the way that the Bible speaks of it. Because clothing is given uh, to bear witness to something greater. And this is so true of this world. We're giving metaphors for everything in the kingdom of God. Light is not just simply light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Bread is not just bread. Uh, bread is a picture of bread, the bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. So we have these metaphors everywhere that are actually very, very meaningful. Well, let's go to the book of Revelation. We'll wind up in Revelation 
we began in Genesis and we, we land the plane here in Revelation. We find lots of the same language that began in Genesis and it flows through in this thread of the biblical doctrine of clothing. And we find the same themes in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. The believer wears a crown. He's clothed with a crown of life. And, and like the priests, on the crown is written holiness to the Lord. Because everything from the crown to the toes is holiness to the Lord. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, uh, or verses 4 and 5, the garments are a metaphor for purity. In this passage, he's speaking to the church in Sardis, and there are some who have defiled their garments. But then he says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and his angels. And here you have the people of God. They're clothed in white garments. And that clothing is a symbol of their justification by faith. When you go to Revelation chapter 3.15, again, garments are a metaphor for salvation. The Lord is talking to the Laodicean church and he says, do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, blind, and naked? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Do you recognize the language that goes all the way through the Bible to the Revel to back to Genesis chapter 3? In Revelation chapter 17, you actually find a contrast to the bride. The bride is dressed so beautifully, the bride of Christ. The bride who has uh, adorned herself to be ready for her husband. And she's dressed beautifully. We talked about this when we were preaching through Revelation. Just the beauty of the bride and how she was arrayed. This is the beauty of the church and her clothing. But there's also the harlot. She's the counterfeit bride. She's also beautiful. She's also rich. But she's a counterfeit. And then in Revelation chapter 19, you find uh, the garments are symbols of righteous acts in Revelation 19 verse 8. And he granted... And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And uh, the justified sinner is being sanctified, and there are works of righteousness that come as a result of their robes of righteousness because they were justified by faith. The justified person by faith has acts of righteousness that flow from his robes of righteousness. And then in Revelation chapter 19, in 11 through 16, you have the Lord Jesus Christ. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, they followed him on white horses. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this takes us, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, stopping along the way and the various places where God deals with clothing you know, it's very interesting that Jesus Christ uh, was stripped of his clothes and his, and his clothes were gambled for. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered in a way that we deserved. We deserve to be exposed. We deserve to be naked. We deserve to be stripped and mocked. But Jesus Christ takes our shame upon him 
and he accepts the punishment that we deserved, even the punishment of nakedness on the cross. The doctrine of clothing is very rich from Genesis to Revelation. And that's why Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So here's my prayer for this church. When you stand in front of the mirror, you know what you're doing. You know why God created clothing. When you go to the gym, you know why God created that clothing that you wear. When you go swimming, when you go to the ocean, you know why God created that clothing and, and the purpose of it. And that in your heart of hearts, you, you want the authority of Jesus Christ. And while you might be thinking about, if you're a woman, the length of your dress or your skirt or the exposure of your skin, but you, that you understand deeply how God designed for you to be clothed and that your conscience would be informed not by this culture, but by the word of God and by the word of God alone. And so that we would be a discerning church, understanding why God made everything for his own glory. And I will just close with Isaiah 52, 1. Uh, this is my admonition to this church. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us such a, a comprehensive testimony of how we ought to live in this world in the midst of the cultures of the world that we find ourselves in, that you've given us understanding for every circumstance, for everything we do in the world. Your, your word is sufficient for everything concerning life and godliness. Lord, we thank you that you forgive sinners, that you clothe us with robes of righteousness that we did not deserve, that your son received the punishment of our nakedness. And you came in loving kindness and you gave us a reminder to help us to, to realize every day as we have clothes on that you cover sinners with robes of righteousness. I pray that would be a great encouragement, Lord, to this church as they move forward in the day. Amen.